Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. Dave, Nationals is behind us. Won't stop raining in Kentucky, but uh, are you are you ready for uh, episode seventy of Plastic Model Mojo? We're coming a long in, way there, brother. I know, indeed, I am. I'm I'm telling you what, especially post nationals, I'm more fired up than ever to do uh, to do an episode. Well, did you sneak a birthday in on me? I snuck a birthday in on you. Well, happy yes. birthday, brother! Well, uh, you, that's not in your Facebook profile, so it didn't. I didn't get a reminder. Yeah, well, I try and I try and keep that on the down low. I don't want Mister Zuckerberg knowing too much. Well, not that he doesn't know everything anyway. <laughs> so birthdays are the best thing on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, that is true. You're, you're right about that. That is true. I got plenty of birthday wishes from. Uh, uh, plenty of folks and plenty of listeners out there. Well, good. Very, well, belated for me. Kind. I'm sorry about well, that. No, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, what is up in your model sphere? Well, I I suspect you and I are experiencing similar things. Uh, coming home from the nationals, of course, fired up. Really want to crank out the modeling. Uh, uh, just you know, the level of mojo that comes off of a national is fantastic. And then you get back home and life hits you in the face. Not only did I have a birthday, my wife had a birthday. My youngest is made the high school volleyball team. So we've got practices, sometimes two a day. Then we've got uh, uh, her first day of school is tomorrow. Um, and uh, so... Your life is interfering. I'm not getting as much modeling done as I want to, but I'm getting modeling adjacent stuff done. Well, that's the model sphere. The modeling yeah. is for a different segment. But the, for as far as the model sphere is going, uh, I am fired up. I'm getting stuff done like cleaning up and organizing my hobby room, trying to get my airbrushes clean, which, by the way, I have learned that I do not do a good job at doing that. Corresponding back and forth with uh, everybody we met at Omaha, the the amount of interaction is just through the roof. So that's key. even though I'm not at the bench as much as I'd like, that's keeping my mojo fire going. How about you? Uh, uh, I want to encourage our listeners, if they've not listened to the latest drop of Small Subjects, they ought to check that out. They ought to be listening to that one anyway, because it's, it's, those guys uh, do a good job. But uh, our friend over at Plastic Posse Podcast and uh, IPMS Second Vice President John Bonani is on is the guest on Small Subjects, and I just thought he did a an exemplary job of uh, taking their questions and uh, explaining what's going on within the society right now and and uh, what uh, hopes to come of some things. So it's, it's worth a listen to. Good job, John. Good job, John. Well, uh, if we're recording a podcast, I've got to think you've got a modeling fluid in front of you. Do you? I do. I'm sipping on a little uh, Old Poly Road whiskey from the Koalau Distillery in Oahu, Hawaii. 
Mm-mm-mm. That that is courtesy of Podfather Dave Goldfinch, who picked that up for us on his way through from Australia to Omaha via Hawaii. That's right, and they almost lost it. <laughs> yes, because he didn't realize you couldn't carry that much liquid as a carry on in your in your uh, in your carry on bag. But you know. Well, let's uh, let's let's credit all those guys because uh, Ian and Julian, oh has, yeah, has had some nice words to say about leaving it with us. So I'm gonna take a couple more drams out of this, and uh, I'm gonna save the rest, and I'll trade you for one of those you got on your shelf at some point. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, what about you? You showed me a picture of a glass with some ice and stuff in it. <laughs> I've got an ice ball and a nice brown liquid. Again, courtesy of the uh, listeners. This is one we brought back from Omaha. It's uh, made right up the road from you. It's Woodford Reserve Double Oak. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, I'll give you a review at the end, but let me tell you on the front end, pretty nice. Yeah, I think we actually opened that one in Omaha. We we did. But we didn't drink much of it. Well, wait a minute. Is that the one? I think that's the one we gave Evan. I think we actually gave Evan uh, <laughs> for his first taste of bourbon that one. Yeah, we probably should have started well on something else. Uh, that, um, it'll put hair on his chest. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't peek. I swear, Evan. <laughs> well, Dave, we gave listener mail a skip last time because we'd done so much prior to the national convention and. As a result, we've got a pretty good pile. Well, let's get into it. It's always fun. Yes, absolutely. It's the best part of the of the podcast for me. Well, there's a lot, but some of them are brief because some of these folks are, are chiming in, you know, because they've seen it. They had, had run into us at the National Convention. First up's a local, Jason Sizemore from Louisville, Kentucky. He's come back into modeling after a 30-year break. You know, that's a song that's played on here a lot. Absolutely. On our little radio station here, coming back yep. into modeling. Uh, and he, th- he says, uh, you know, the podcast and some YouTubers have helped getting back into modeling kind of easy because they have taken a fun approach and uh, gets a lot of great kit and tool recommendations too. Now, he's going to recommend Sprues and Brews scale modeling on YouTube. Now, I think yeah. I've seen this guy before. I think I have. I'll have to look that up. I'm not up. a regular follower. There's not many I follow as a subscriber and digest everything there's just there's too it's too many yeah no that's right but usually you know what whenever somebody reaches out to me and says hey you need to look at this or you should look at that the content is coming at you like a fire hose so the fact that our listeners find these things watch these things and recommend them to us you know they're doing a lot of the heavy lifting for us ah that's true and uh that, they do. I mean, there's so many good ones out there that there's just, you know, we we drop a name every now and then, and we got a few we follow a little more religiously. But, uh, yep, we'll check it out, and we'll throw that up in the show notes so everybody else can check it out. I mean, it's got brews in it. It can't be that bad. Exactly. Sprues and brews, the two two of the things I like the most in the world. Up next, Mike Clegas from Guelph, Ontario. Hey, you said it right. I quit guessing. Oh, <laughs> that was bad. Uh, now he did come by the table. Yes. And, uh, I guess he's met 
either heard on the podcast or maybe you met him in Omaha. I, I don't sure I follow this exactly skimming it here, but uh, Brandon, Brandon Walters, Tony Bell or a uh, fuzzy ghost. He says, that's probably not his real name. <laughs> probably not. Uh, probably not. He uh, says, that's the power of the podcast. Connect people with like interest. Cause uh, all those gentlemen also live in Guelph, a town of uh, 140 K. And uh, up until now he didn't know him. You know what? That if, if nothing else, if I, if I hear no other emails, that one alone is enough to warm my heart. Cause hook, hooked four guys up together. Didn't, you know, at least one of them didn't know the other three was out there. Next thing you know, they're getting together modeling and you've got the, the formation of a club and a, and a in-person modeling community. He did meet us in Omaha and he gave me a pronunciation correction on the spot. <laughs> uh, he wants to know what tips you have for organizing your references. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you, you are asking the wrong person. My lots, of, refer- lots of, lots of random stacks. How about that? Lots of, lots of random stacks. Um, uh, actually, well, the one thing I can recommend is lots of bookshelves. They're organized uh, by spine height. You know, they are not organized by spine height or color. <laughs> I tend to organize by subject matter. Like, I've got a Russian aircraft shelf. I've got an Italian aircraft shelf. I've got a shelf and a half of Japanese aircraft uh, references. Then, in addition to that, sometimes I have subsections for things I'm particularly particularly interested in like ploesti i've got a bunch of ploesti books and or ploest or however you want to say it so i've got those organized together i've got the flying tigers organized together and then in addition to that and this is just probably an indication of uh adhd i've got one whole bookcase small bookcase that are just books by uh, Chris Shores and uh, Cull, Brian Cull. Personally, my favorite aircraft history authors, and they both are very prolific, and I read pretty much everything they've put out. And so I've, they've, got, they've got their own little book, book sh- bookcase just for their work. But, you know, I'm the wrong person to go to for organization. I, my... My modeling bench looks like a mess, and my ref my modeling references are here and there. I know where they are. I mean, if I need to put my hand on a particular book, I can generally do it very quickly. But I'm not sure that I could explain the actual organization to anybody else. <laughs> now I know you're not like that. You're a an engineer. You, I'm sure your stuff's all in plastic dust covers and organized by subject matter and spine height. No, it's not. <laughs> well, it was nice meeting you too, Mike. And you said at the end of this email that you had a Mosin Nagant story and it could wait for Omaha, but I think it's still waiting. I don't think we talked about that. So right back in and tell me that story. Unless I just was so giddy with the <laughs> excitement of the show, I just forgot which is entirely possible. Oh yeah, that, that it it came at us like a blur. I mean, it really really just it was overwhelming. Sean Hopkins from uh Chicago. Good town. 
I wonder if he's part of the uh, Butch O'Hare gang up that way. Could be. Maybe he should be if he's not. Yep. There, there are a bunch of clubs in Chicago, depending on where you're located in Chicago. Well, that's true. Kind of a big place. Yes. Well, he's enjoying the podcast. Uh, he's liking the chats, and they help bring his confidence back to relearn motor skills that uh, he's let atrophy a little bit. So, Sean, thanks for listening, man. Uh, he sent some uh, in-progress photos, a lot of a lot of modern armor, a few World War IIs thrown in there. So keep going, man. Yep, absolutely. Oh, this one helps, Dave. Helps put a name on a bottle. Okay. <laughs> I swear, San Marcos, if this suddenly happens again in San Marcos, we are going to have stickers to put on bottles. Gordon Sorensen from San Remy near uh, Montreal. Okay. So I guess he's in... Uh, I can guess which bottle we're talking about. Quebec. Yes, the maple whiskey. Yes. Which I've not opened yet. I've got it. I, I have not opened mine either. I am looking forward to opening it. And as soon as, um, frankly, as soon as the Woodford Reserve Double Oak is gone, that's probably going to be my next one. Well, we might ought to coordinate that and double up on it on the episode. That'd be good. That would be good. Since I've not had it either, because it's one we didn't open, because we got it a little later in the uh, yep. a little later in the weekend. Yep. Ed Olszewski from uh, Syracuse, New York, is back again. Uh, he's been looking at a set of 72nd scale P51D Mustang decals. There are a lot of them out there, man. Uh, these are from Model Maker decals. Model Maker decals. And no date given on when the decals were printed. Now, his question is, well, if we had any thoughts on when they were made and... Uh, our thoughts on when you should be careful when buying decals of unknown age. Oh, that, you know, it's a good question. That is a great question. You obviously the vast majority of sheets I buy tend to be new sheets. Therefore I have little or no concern, but sometimes, especially at like the nationals or a local show, a guy's got a box of stuff he's just trying to sell. And in yeah. there will be super scale sheets or Ministry of Small Aircraft Production or, you know, stuff that, that could have been done 15, 20 years ago. And really, you're taking your chances on those. The The one thing to really look for is discoloration of the carrier of the clear film carrier. Not that that's that's fatal. I mean, if it's a sheet you really want, you've been looking for and the sheet you're finding in there has a little bit of yellow on the edges of the carrier. That's not fatal to it. You can actually take those and put them up against a, sun-facing window, and over time, that yellow will bleach out, and you can use the decals. Now, with some older decals, what you're really worried about is how the person who owned them previously stored them. Uh, storage is the key to keeping your decals alive. Uh, I, I keep mine in Tupperware tubs uh, filled with silica gel packets in dark 
places with very little humidity or as low as I can get in my house. Uh, and that keeps decal sheets fresh. It keeps them from cracking when they hit the water. Now, with if you've got an older sheet that you've bought that you really want to make sure that works, you can always get, I know Superscale makes it, uh, I don't know who else does it, or Microsoft, uh, Microset. Yeah, yeah, Super, that's who it is. Supersol- uh, a, de- uh, a clear coat that you can spray over the dec- whole decal sheet so that the chances of the decal fracturing when you hit the water due to age are less. Now, the problem, of course, with spraying the entire decal sheet with this, uh, uh, I forget what they call it. I forget what the name of the product is, but you spray it over the whole decal sheet and it's basically like liquid carrier film. So you're spraying it on top of the decals. The only problem is you then have to cut out the decals around the original carrier film to, to get the, the same effect as the original decal. But, you know, I think that'd be the nuclear option though. Yes, it is. That is it. And that's the other thing. If you've got an old decal sheet, okay, you bought, you found an old decal sheet and it's something you've been looking for. You need that particular marking on it or the whatever. The first thing to do when you go to use it is cut another decal that you do not need off of the sheet and test it because that will, that will tell you a lot about what the condition of your sheet is. If you cut one of the small decals out and you put it in water or put it on your wet palette, which is the way I do uh, decals, and it just shatters, you know at that point you need to go to that nuclear option if you've got any hope of using that one or two markings that you have to have off that sheet. But you know, usually when you're buying those older decal sheets, you're not investing a lot of money. Well, yeah, that's a good that's a good point I was going to make. It's just a some of them are stupid priced. Some of them, well, but they're not that old. There's some sheets out there from I, I can't think of the name, but there's some highly desirable sheets out there that uh, were limited and people mm-hmm. still want them, but there nobody's making them. Nobody's redone right. the artwork. Uh, I would add to this though that you know one thing you might do is jump on Scalemates and see about if they have any information, so not all the decal third right. party aftermarket makers are out there, but some of them are, that one may be, and you may know when that sheet was first printed. So you, you would at least have a, a stake in the ground of, of how old it absolutely could be. And right. I would say if those things have been stored properly by all superficial evidence, discoloration of the decal sheet, discoloration of the, the uh, extraneous packaging it may be in, uh, it's probably okay. I have, uh, listen, as everybody knows, I'm a decal holic. I have de- super scale decal sheets that I know are 30 years old that I have used decals off of perfectly fine. Absolutely as good as if it was manufactured yesterday. So, you know, it really does depend on how the previous owner, in, in the case of used decal sheets, well, used, previously owned decal sheets. It depends on how the uh, previous owner took care of them. Hopefully they took care of them well. 
Well, Dalton Lott from Georgia has written back in. He's a young guy. He says he is young. He's 15. Well, glad you're enjoying the hobby at 15 there, Dalton. Yes. Uh, he had the question about the controversial subjects before, but, you know, he's he's moving on to some new questions. All right. Uh, and some of these we just answered in that last segment. His first question is, how do you deal with yellow decals from the 70s? He recently got a Hasegawa F4B-4 and 32nd scale, and he's not looking forward to building a biplane from the 70s, uh, much less having the decals crumble or go on noticeably yellow. First thing I would do is go out there. I know that there were some aftermarket sheets made for that model. Uh, ye- yellow Wings makes a set for this de- this aircraft. There you go. Um, yellow Wings decals. Yes, yellow wings decals. What I would tell you is that the Hasegawa decals of that era were not very good. They've gotten much better over over time. Since there are plenty of aftermarkets out there, for, or at least some aftermarket sheets out there, it's worth an extra 10 or 12 or even 15 bucks to go ahead and buy a brand new set of decals you know is going to work and it isn't going to ruin your day. Like I said, those Hasegawa 70s decals, even fresh, they were not that great. So spend a little money. With this kid, I would say go ahead and get the thing built before you go buy the decals. <laughs> it's an eminently buildable kit. It probably is. It I don't is. know, man. It is. I've seen them built up plenty. It's a pretty plane. It is an absolutely beautiful airplane. And amazing that Hasegawa back in the 70s decided to do that in 30-second scale. I just, uh, Yeah, I know. I'm amazed. Somebody probably saw a color photograph of one of Yellow Wings paint. Probably. And it, that'd make you want to do it right there. Yep. Dalton, I hope this isn't true. Your greatest modeling mishap. Oh, what did he do? His greatest modeling mishap is one that any man fears. Oh, no. Not realizing you have super glue on your hands until you go take a piss. Oh, no, no, no. No, 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 (laughs) no. Ouch. I hope that didn't really happen. If it did, acetone stings sensitive skin areas. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't want to hit that with a zip kicker. No, God, no. (laughs) No. Well, moving on. Rick Cooper from Fresno, California. Thanks you for putting him on to Jack Henneman's podcast, History of the Americans. Oh, great podcast. Fantastic. Uh, And uh, he brought us the Buffalo Trace, which I dumped off on you. I have it, as a matter of fact. And, uh, um, you know. I know the advantage, unlike the maple whiskey or one of the other, the Hawaiian bourbon that you've got, Buffalo Trace is a known quantity, and I know for a fact it's going to be good. So that's kind of nice, is to have one that you know, no matter what, this is going to be enjoyable. Scott Stakowiak from the Mid-Michigan Model Makers in Saginaw, Michigan. Uh, and he asked some questions about the, the podcast roundtable or forum we had and uh you know what kind of questions were asked and uh who some of the prizes went to because uh i don't think that was there there was some murmurings of of live streaming that but i don't know that it happened i don't think they live streamed it yeah maybe next year 
And I don't think they even recorded it, to be honest, because as much as we tease him, Scott Gentry forgot his mobile recording equipment when he went to the Nationals. And so we gave him endless type tie, uh, endless amounts of grief about that. So Well, he could tell us we had ours and didn't bring it either to, the, yeah. to, this, to this anyway. Yeah, we didn't bring it to the roundtable. We didn't think of, of recording that. Uh, he's making plans for San Marcos and Madison, so he's got the next two years ready to uh, to look forward to. And uh, I'll try to get you some answers, Scott, on uh, on your questions. I, off the top of my head, right now, I I don't remember. Uh, in general, it was a lot of uh, things like how each of us got into modeling, how each of us got into podcasting, uh, kind of our our build philosophy. Our favorite thing about modeling, I guess I'm doing pretty good because those are all those four things that were asked right yeah. there. And one uh, of the prizes went to a younger modeler uh, in the audience. Uh, he got the the, uh, got the what is tank yourself, art, yeah, or the mat, the mat, the modeling mat. So I know that was the one prize that I know somebody got. I feel like I should remember who got the P38, but I do not. So uh, I don't either. If you got the P38, or you know who it was. Shout drop out. Us, drop us a note and shout it out because uh, Scott wants to know. And it's a hot topic, Dave. Uh, what is that? Eric Simmelmayer out of uh, California, Belmont's his place of work, uh, pretty much asked the same thing. John Fincher from West Frankfurt, Illinois, a.k.a. IPMS Seattle East. <laughs> Seattle East. I love uh, that. He's the He used to be out there with uh, Jim and the gang. Yes. And... Uh, he likes the podcast because it's remarkably similar to being at someone's house at a you know a modeling group session, group modeling yep. session. Uh, the background talking is great. He just misses being able to contribute to the conversation. Well, this is how you do it. You send us an email or message and we'll get you in on the conversation. Yeah. And who knows? We may be able to do something in the future. That's right. We might. Uh, now, he's involved with the group builds or was um at the uh, Museum of Flight. Is that right? Yes. Yep. And uh, Jim's talked about this on the podcast, and uh, we've talked about it with Jim as well. But, you know, it's, it's a big uh, display-only show held at the museum. Lots of models. And uh, it's, it's one group build that he is involved with. But uh, uh, in general, he says, as a friend once said, quote, nothing sucks the joy out of this hobby like building on a schedule. Yes. <laughs> Enjoy that Mooseroo build there, Dave. Yeah, thank you. Hey, <laughs> listen, you got a Gundam. I got a 70-second scale aircraft. In the scheme of things, I have nothing to complain about. Josh Buck, Eagle Mountain, Utah. Now, uh, see, this is all working out. Because Josh brought us that bottle of High West. Oh, is, okay. I don't, that's the, now we got a, I'll have to go look. I, I remember the name and... The jar of peanut butter. Yes, and okay. I think you have the I you have the alcohol. I've got the jar of peanut butter. Okay, which I'm feeding to my children. So okay, there you go. Pay it forward, Josh. Feed, he's feeding his children with it. That's right. <laughs> that way, I can tell my wife that you know. See, honey, I'm sitting down there recording a, a podcast, and you know, the, the children are benefiting. Well, he says that if we ever do another. Goofs, gaffs, and blunders episode to let him know, and he can give us a few hours worth of material. <laughs> uh, see, we've done one this year. Uh, 
we probably we'll probably get around to another one next year sometime. Yes. So uh, save them up. We'll put out a uh, a call to action on that, so you'll know it's coming a couple episodes ahead of time. So think up your best, and we'll uh, we'll put them in the rotation. I like listener mail, Dave. I do too, man. Derek Post. Derek. Derek wants to say, uh, you are right, Dave. I'll listen to this all day long. Just need your wife to say it. Yeah, well, that's right. Heck, I'm happy when Jim Bates says it. (laughs) I can't remember what he was doing, but uh, you remember he was going off somewhere after Nats. So uh, he's home two weeks after Nats. Big box awaiting him when he gets home. All the stuff he bought. You were right, Dave. Second Christmas. Honest to gosh, I, yeah, I this it started totally by accident for me, and now it's almost become a tradition because, yeah, it's like second Christmas. You you know, you get home, you put that stuff away for a week or two weeks or whatever, and then you open up the suitcase with all your modeling purchases. It's it's like getting them all again. It's it is second Christmas. Well. He likes them big. There's a B36 Peacemaker in there from Monogram. I have two of those kits. That had to go into, into his overbox diagonally so it would fit. <laughs> I, I I feel your pain. And what looks like a an Orion, maybe. Oh, really? P3. It's some kind of ASW plane. It's got the, okay. got the thing sticking off the back of the tail. Yeah, probably. I the I, I'm not. I'm not familiar with the uh, kit, so I. I don't know. It looks like a mini craft Hasegawa kit. Mini craft Hasegawa. That probably is the, uh, uh, the P3 kit. Or no, Nimrod. Nimrod's only air fix. Okay, and Elmer Fudd. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, Derek, glad you had second Christmas. Yes, absolutely. Glad Dave was right for once. No, no, Dave's <laughs> always right. <laughs> Uh, well, our inquisitor from uh, New York City, Michael Karnalka, actually sent us two. All right. And I'm going to pick one and save one. Good. Do that. All right. All right, Dave. All right. What is the biggest, most damaging loss to the carpet monster you've ever had? Oh, God. It would have to be one that just trashed the build, that stopped the build completely and and never got finished because of it. I'm trying to remember what that would be. I know it's happened. I know that I've had at least one model that I lost a part that was so vital that I couldn't, well, I shouldn't say couldn't. I had I had no motivation to somehow scratch build it, replace replace it, or buy another kit and steal a part. Um, oh, I wish I could tell you what kit it was, but it has happened. No exact answer. No exact answer, but it. I've suffered a loss so so great that it did cause me to trash the kit but I just can't tell you what one it was. I probably have done this. Now, one that comes to mind was when I was a kid. We are on okay. vacation, and I bought Monogram's 48 scale P38. As any kid always does, I opened it all up there at the condo. Yeah. Looked it over. It was 
looking through the instructions, brought it home, was missing the center section of the canopy. Oh. Yeah, you think that ever got built? <laughs> no. No. Yeah, yeah. Clear parts, especially way back then, losing a clear part was was fatal to your effort. So that's a long time ago. That's so long ago it might not count. May get a kid well, free free pass on that one. No, no, but I'm impressed you remember it. It's just traumatic, Dave. Yeah, well, clearly, clearly. This is back when we were going to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina all the time. There was a hobby shop in the in the shopping mall there. Yeah. And uh, we'd always go. We'd always go out one day. One afternoon, we'd go do that. After you got, everybody got good and sunburned or sick of the sun, we'd all go shopping one day. I, I had the same experience, except I was at Pensacola, Florida, and it was Bobby's Hobby Shop. Uh, and which, by the way, just closed like a year, year and a half ago after something like 60 or 70 years in operation. And uh, when we were down there on vacation, after three or four days down there, I would bug my father to the point where he would take us over to the hobby shop and I'd always buy a kit. Well, one more recent is a current project. Uh-oh. Have you lost something? I lost one of the uh, exhaust flares to the E16 Paul when I was you, dur- during the assembly phase. Remember? You, you did? Oh, did you find it? No. I bought a second oh, kit. that's right. You and actually I made, And I made, a, I made a squash mold of the part so I wouldn't have to trash the kit. Yeah, I remember that. For 70-second scale aircraft, uh, while their kits aren't on the high end, Fujimi's prices right now sure are. Oh, yeah. Well, Fujimi has always been higher priced than Hasegawa and some of the other Japanese manufacturers. So it was costly. It wasn't uh, damaging so much as co- costly. You'll, you'll have it at, at our table at some contest, and next thing you know, you'll sell it. That's a good idea. Yeah. Well, you know, we got the MMCL show coming up. That's right. Well, Dave, that is it for listener mail all right in addition to in addition to listener mail i've been getting facebook messenger left and right we met so many people at the at the uh, omaha so many of them have reached out the interactions have been fantastic i love it don't get me wrong but there's just been a ton of them uh i just want to highlight three recent interactions. The first was with a guy named Bob Grimster. And Bob was listening to our one of our episodes, and he heard me mention that I have an essential tremor, which makes modeling difficult for me. For me. And he has the same thing. And so he reached out and he asked, you know, what I do, what medicine I take, etc. And in the conversation, I mentioned that my sister, who's a doctor, gave me the best tip that I ever had in this regard. And that was for about, about 30 minutes before I sat down to model to drink a beer. Because what the alcohol in the beer does is it deadens the, the nerve impulses and gets rid of the shake. And he was saying that his doctor, you know, he sees a neuro- neurologist, etc., and that uh, uh, nobody'd ever recommended that to him. And uh, 
I, I told him that, you know, doctors apparent are generally apparently loath to recommend that their patients start drinking because they fear obviously the, the downsides if that doesn't work out. But my sister knew me well enough that she knew that that wasn't going to be a problem. And, and yes, that for me, modeling fluid actually has a practical effect. It allows me to model in ways that I would not be able to otherwise. So hopefully he got something out of that. I want to mention our friend, Mr. Karnaka, because he reached out to me pointing out that a book, I don't know if you've seen these images of war books. Uh, they had cover different campaigns and all through photographs, kind of like an after the battle, but not not they don't do the the comparisons to the current location or or any of that stuff and they were coming out with a book on Narvik and the Norway campaign and of course that he knew from listening to the episodes that that was an area of interest for me well images of war finally published they had had this one as an upcoming one and i knew about it uh, but they finally published it, and I had missed the fact that they had published it. So he let me know, and I was able to go out and, and buy the book, which I had always been intending to do. So it's one of those things where the listeners are out there helping us, either filtering YouTube or looking out for new books published or whatever, that helps my modeling simply because listeners listen and reflect back that information. The third interaction that I want to highlight was a uh, listener called Paul Toutant. And he was he's from Calgary, Alberta. And he found a beer up there called Ghost Pepper Hefeweizen by a company called Ra Rail Yard Brewing. And uh, after taking a shot about uh, the peanut butter whiskey episode, uh, he sh sent me a picture and asked if I'd ever, if I knew anything about it. And I said I didn't, but that I'd had something similar, or at least along the same vein of a peppered beer, Country Boy Brewing out of uh, Lexington has that uh, uh, nacho bait habanero blonde ale that uh, they make that, again, has that same idea of a peppered beer. So we got to, to talk about that a little bit and just back and forth. A real, real pleasant conversation wasn't about anything earth shattering, but it was just, it's, it's the thing I got to say I enjoy most about this podcast is getting to talk to all of these guys who are modelers, not only about modeling, but just about interesting stuff. I'd never know about that if it weren't for the fact that he saw it, thought it was interesting, knew that we had an interest and, and messaged me. So, you know, keep those, keep those uh, DM, Facebook DMs coming. And if you don't get a reply, reach back out either through DM or, or email uh, plasticmodelmojo at gmail.com and, and 
reach out because truly that is the the part of this that I enjoy the most is the interactions. All right. And as you just said, email plasticmodelmojo at gmail.com or hit us up through Facebook Messenger and uh, love to hear from you. This is, it is, it's one of our favorite segments of the show. It absolutely is. This is the point in the show where I ask you when you're done listening, if you would please take a moment and rate the podcast on whatever podcast app you listen to or listen through. Uh, Please give us five stars. It helps to raise the visibility and helps to uh, help other modelers find us. And we are continuing to have new listeners, new people contacting us all the time saying, hey, I just found the podcast. And one of the ways that happens is the people who are currently listening rate the podcast and give us five stars. The other thing I would ask is, For you modelers out there, particularly you modelers who are in modeling clubs and thus get to associate with other modelers on a regular basis, if you know another modeler who's not currently listening to the podcast, if you tell them about it, if you would show them and help them figure out what a podcast is and how to access them. Uh, One of the ways where we get listeners is a personal recommendation from a current listener. So we would appreciate if you would help us grow the podcast. And while you're doing that, you're going to want to check out all the other podcasts out there in the model sphere. And you can do that by going to one place. You can go to modelpodcast.com, modelpodcastplural.com. That is a consortium website set up with our friend Stuart Clark from the Scale Model Podcast up in Canada. And this website serves as a single link repository for all the other podcasts that uh, have chosen to participate with us and help out in all this mutual cross-promotion. You know, I noticed a new one on there. There's one from Sweden on there now. Is there really? That's right. Um, it's, I assume it's in Swedish. Well, I was going to find out. I haven't found out yet. <laughs> I, I need, yeah, listen, I'd be interested to, to, to at least listen and see if it is. Well, in addition to podcasts, we've got all our blog and YouTube friends out there in the model sphere. We've got uh, Jim Bates of Scale Canadian TV on YouTube. He just dropped one fairly recently. Yes, he did. Always good. Uh, we've got uh, Jeff Groves. Inch High Guy, all things 72nd scale at the Inch High Guy blog. Chris Wallace, model airplane maker, blog and YouTube channel. We need to get him back on the show. Yes, we do. Well, he is currently on vacation in a secret location in northern Canada. But when he returns, we definitely need to get him back. And finally, Stephen Lee, a spruce pie with frets blog. Uh, great blog. And uh, we need to touch base with him and see if he had any luck at Three Floyd's Brewery, Dave. Yes, we do. And uh, this man is a machine. He he cranks out posts every day uh, in addition to just short notice posts or, hey, here's something I found that's interesting. He's building a lot himself. And then occasionally he goes into one of these deeper dive posts and those never fail to be thought-provoking. So definitely recommend uh, his blog. Finally, this is the point in the episode where I ask you if you're not a member of IPMS USA or IPMS Canada or your local or your national IPMS 
organization in whatever country you happen to be listening in, please consider joining, uh, particularly those folks who are listening in the U.S. Exciting things are happening in IPMS USA right now. Over the next year, year and a half, there are some changes on the way. There are some exciting developments. The Nationals is just going to get better and better, and you want to be a part of this. Join IPMS USA, help support continuing to put on those Nationals, and come to them, and let's have a great time. Let's have a word from our sponsor and our guest tonight, Mr. John Miller at Model Paint Solutions. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder steam back airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. Well, guess what, Dave? Wagon's hoe for Omaha? Nope. Come and make it in Texas. All right. At least for now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mr. Pilhoffer's excited, and he's excited to be working with us and uh, help promote this thing. Make their second shot at pulling this off. The resounding success they deserve it to be, given the circumstances of 2020. Yep. That said, Dave, it is 358 days until the 2023 IPMS National Convention in San Marcos, Texas. We are under a year. Now, we don't have a lot yet, but I will tell you, uh, of utmost importance. That's right. We have the one piece of important news. To all would-be attendees, particularly those in the Eastern and Central time zones. Listen up, folks. The hotel block goes live at midnight Central time on September 3rd. Now, that's midnight Central time on September 3rd. So, heads up. Set your alarm today yes and those rooms will go quickly get in on it that's right so i've already got the the alarm set on my phone that's one o'clock in the morning our time you won't even be in bed yet do you right i won't i'll probably be at the bench <laughs> hope you're not airbrushing yeah well it's all right i'm gonna make that reservation that's what a speaker phone is for all right. Well, that's all we're going to do on that tonight, but uh, that's the big news. Yeah. We have to have Len on soon just to, to start talking about it. Midnight Central Time, September 3rd. So be forewarned. Yep. Well, Dave, as we alluded to earlier, our special segment tonight, Mind the Gap, is a little bit of a... Uh, Seam elimination strategies, Dr. Strangebrush style. He's going to tell us a little bit about how he does it. So I'm sure there's going to be something to learn. Absolutely. Every time. So let's check that out. Well, Dave, it's been a while since we've had our guest on the show, but we're welcoming him back tonight. John Miller from Model Paint Solutions, a.k.a. Dr. Strangebrush. John, how are you doing tonight? We missed you at Omaha, but uh, we're glad to have you tonight. Yowza, yowza, yowza. <laughs> oh, Fozzie Bear. <laughs> All right. John, I, I can't tell you the number of people who came up to us at Omaha and said that they were disappointed you weren't there. They were really looking forward to, to getting some actual FaceTime 
with and, you. So, and each one of those people cost me five bucks. <laughs> they're it's all true. from Seattle. They're they're, they're bots, <laughs> right? It's true. It was an expensive kind of a program, but you know, I think it was worth it in the long run. Yeah, so. you got to keep the name recognition out. There. Uh, yeah, you do what you do. You know, you know what you <laughs> the meat of tonight's discussion is going to be about uh, gap filling and seam elimination. But uh, John, before we hopped on here, you want to roll back the tape a little bit and pick up on something we we might have missed last time when we were talking about clear coats. I do, I do. I want to go back and we got we got so uh, excited during the last conversation. I, I neglected to mention one of the most important aspects of preparing a clear coat, especially if it's a clear coat that's a flat, a semi mat, or a mat, and that is filtering that clear coat. By filtering, you don't mean altering it with colors like armor modelers use the term filter, right? I, I speak in the in the in the strict physical uh, sense of filtering. Okay. So so uh, you know the old the old deal was uh, your 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 wife's uh, pantyhose doubled over, you know, which actually works pretty well. I've used that before for old paint, and that's a good one. But um, shameless plug time um, uh, on Model Paint Solutions, my site, I carry the AK paint filters. These are the the handiest little hummers to to use for filtering, as again, especially uh, 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 semi uh, matte or flat clear coats. Um, they fit in the average five mil airbrush paint cup. They also happen to fit perfectly into our 15 mil beakers. And uh, what you can do is, is take your, your, your flat matte or semi matte dilution, uh, run that through a filter prior to airbrushing. And first off, you'll be surprised at just the amount of, of goo that you see on the bottom of that filter after you run uh, any of those clears through. And all of that goo is nothing but just the stuff that turns into the the rough texture that you get, especially if you over apply a, a flat or a semi mat. So anyway, if you take a look at uh, the article I did on the Arma Hobby Ding Hao 172nd P51B, um, mm-hmm. one of the things I did with that a little differently is is uh, in response to a friend of mine, Mike Millette, who uh, who's a firm believer in using the old testers dull coat. I took some of that dull coat and brought it up in the new AK nitrocellulose-based lacquer thinner, and then I ran that through a filter, and I was surprised at the amount of gunk that came out of that tester's dull coat. But when I used the filtrate, uh, you know, to to spray on the model, it flatted beautifully and didn't give that snowy effect that you can get with you apply flat too much. So I don't want to say it's a game changer, but I would say it's just below game changer. If you've not uh, filtered your flats in your semi mat or your mat, you may want to try doing that to decrease that snowy effect. What, what uh, now <laughs> it doesn't surprise me because Lord knows AK and MIG are coming out with a product every week, but <laughs> this is the first I have heard of it. Is it like, uh, 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 paper coffee filter type thing or like a, the lab version of a, yeah. of a picture of a, picture. Yeah. Picture your average coffee filter, you know, a, a cone shaped deal, but right. it's only, it's only, let's say an, an inch, an inch around um, mm-hmm. with, with a, a, a really f- a, a fine 
super fine nylon mesh at the bottom of the filter. I've used a one filter for about 10 different filtrations, and I just wash the thing off with lacquer thinner or alcohol when I'm done, wash it out with water, and then reuse it over and over and over again. So it's it's far from a single-use unit. You can use it, you know, 50, 50 times. Um, yeah, very handy little tool. And you say, you know, I always think of that stuff in the in the flat coat, that milky gunky, as the stuff that makes the flat makes it flat it is but 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 in addition to the stuff that is let's call it um you know a single monomer if you will of this flat flatting agent right well wait but, a minute he's breaking out the big words I, now. I am i am but imagine with time these things aggregating into just big goobers and that's what happens with time with a lot of paints right and that's what's going to come through the nozzle and land and, and land on your finish so gotcha. all, all you're doing when you filter it is taking all those big goobers out and leaving just the finely suspended flatting agent in solution. And again, take a look at the article, the Ding Hal uh, 72nd P51. I use this flat coat on the exhaust areas and pretty much all over the entire model to just blend it all in and was amazed at how, number one, efficient that flat is and of course everybody knows tester zelcode is a very efficient flat the problem with it is that it, it goes to snow too quick if you will if you filter it that's not the case it gives you a very good flatting act uh, um, uh, i should say a flatting a, uh, uh, agent but at the same time it doesn't go snowy on you i've also done this with the ak flat semi-flat and mats got the same result Got a fair amount of stuff in the in the filter. When I shot it on a model, I was surprised at how clean the resulting finish was. So anyway, I'm, I'm going to have to try that. That's interesting, and I'm pretty sure this is the first time monomers and goober have been used in the same. <laughs> I think we've used goober before. Yeah, we've used but, goober before. Yeah, but monomers and goober in the oh, same sentence. This you, is high level science. If you like monomers and goobers, wait till you get wait till you see what we're going to get into tonight. I think Dave has a book of $5 words, though. I think that's in your profession. <laughs> it is. It's, that, it's, it's that, Roger's book of $5 words. Yeah, well, it's a lot a lot of Latin stuff nobody ever uses anymore. But, uh, well, I'm going to have to look at those uh, those filters because uh, that's, that's, yeah. that's interesting to me. And I'm coming up on the B-52 with getting ready to spray my, my gloss and my flat. So I'm, I'm yep. definitely going to look at that. But Well, what I, what I did real quick is I put together a little kit that you can use with the filter. And you can buy the kit, and it's got a couple of beakers that the filter fits into on top, has some pipettes for transferring your, your solution that you're going to filter. Um, and it has some bottles that you can pour your filtrate into, along with mixing uh, balls and everything. Um, so anyway... Uh, that's what I do. I'll set up 30, 40 mils of a flat, a semi-flat or a mat, whatever. I'll run all of that through a filter, put that in a storage bottle, cap it, and it's ready to go when I, when I need it. I don't have to run through that whole filtration step over and over and over again. Oh, I would definitely going to take a look at that. Now, now let's go with some uh, even bigger words. Seams. Seams. <laughs> There's more to seams, it seems. Okay. So tell us, how do we, how do we eliminate seams? How about ghost seams? What do we do? What do you fill with in lightness? First off, let, let me, let me stand back and say, I am far from a master 
Okay. Uh, I, I consider myself a, a model builder of average skill. And oftentimes I will have a scene that I have to go back two or three or five times until it is filled to my satisfaction. But I do have a couple of quick suggestions for you that might make uh, make uh, uh, scene filling a little easier. Um, so let's start with, for the discussion, let's think about um, something simple like a P-51 Mustang model or a Spitfire or something like that, where you've got two fuselage halves coming together. And then those fuselage halves uh, being glued on top of a wing a wing assembly. Okay, so let's start with before. Of course, we 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 do any serious. Are we still good? Yeah, yep. that was my. Sorry. Okay, that's all right. So let's let's start with before we do any serious building. We're going to take the sprues and and soak them in and um, uh, denatured alcohol and Windex, a one to one solution. Um, if you guys are looking for denatured alcohol, you're not going to find it at Lowe's or Home Depot anymore. Um, you can only find yeah, why it. Why is that? Because people were drinking it and going blind. <laughs> but, I, you know, I, I knew that back in Prohibition, obviously, but you can go to the <laughs> liquor store. Why would, uh, No, it's it's denatured alcohol has methanol. Uh, right. A, a fair amount Shut of methanol. Shut your kidneys down. And it'll kill your optic nerves. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's the main reason. I tried to track this down. I spoke with a couple of people at the corporate level at Lowe's and Home Depot, and that's essentially what I was told. Because that's, um, that's where I always got mine. Yeah. You can still get it from paint stores like a Sherwin-Williams. Williams, Gotcha. Yeah. So, in fact, that's where I'm getting mine now. Um, and you get denatured alcohol, and this is for cleaning glass. You right. may still find denatured alcohol at Lowe's or Home Depot, and it, it will probably say as a you know, for fuel or fuel. for camping that's fuel. Ex- that's that's exactly yeah. what it says. Yeah, that's not the one you want. It's got a no. petrol- petroleum distillate in it, and it turns the Windex cloudy, and you don't want that. Um, right. But uh, but anyway, you can get it from Sherwin Williams or other uh, you know devoted paint stores. So I start with denatured alcohol and Windex. That's with ammonia, not the the vinegar stuff. And mix that one to one, and I usually let the sprues sit for two or three hours. Um, wash them off with hot water. I bring this up only because this serves to remove that mold release compound that can interfere with the gluing process and therefore getting a nice stable seam. So we start with getting the, the model real nice and degreased. Now, let's go ahead and jump forward to we put the, the cockpit together, the cockpit tubs and the fuselage halves, and we're getting ready to put the fuselage halves together. At this point, I will stop and I will take either 600 grit profile accessories synthetic sandpaper or I'll take, you know, that, uh, that tri-grit polisher the old squadron. Yeah. Now AK makes the same thing. The, the gray portion on that is, is about the same. And I'll take that or 600 grit and I will very carefully roughen up the mating surfaces of the fuselage. Okay. That's just, just those parts that are going to touch when you glue the halves together. Okay. You're not, you're not trying to really remove any plastic. All you're trying to do is eliminate that polished surface. Exactly. That, you know, gotcha. 
give give the paint uh, give the the, uh, the 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 glue something to bite into and you need to be mindful if you of course move too much and it's a high fidelity model if you will like a tamaya or a wingnut wings kit you take too much plastic off and you throw the alignment of the parts off right. and then you're going to be a world of hurt so that's why i say 600 grit or just the gray the gray portion of the tri grit polisher roughing up the halves and here's 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 the step I like to use the old Tamiya hot liquid cement, the real, the real liquid kind. And I will take a swab, and these are available on my site. You don't have to use a swab. You could use a Q-tip or something similar. You could also use a paintbrush. You could use a micro brush. Um, but using something that doesn't convey lint, I, I dip this in the hot cement, and then I paint the mating surfaces of the fuselage halves two or three or four times. Being very careful to not let that hot cement, a drop of it, you know, run over the side of the fuselage. We've right. all done that. We've all done that. God knows I've done it enough times. Um, one of the things that, and again, shameless plug time. One of the tools that are, is real handy to do this step is these little microfiber or polyester swabs that I have on the site. Now, I was first exposed to these for, uh, for, for, for being used to clean microscope uh, objectives on $80,000 microscopes. But they're also real handy for a painting tool. And I use a small swab. It has a, a head about the size of your pinky nail. No lint, no anything. It's a microfiber swab. And I dip that into the hot cement. And I use it to paint the mating uh, surfaces of the fuselage halves. Again, three or four times until the, saw, the, the the plastic itself on the mating surface starts to get soft. And you can push your fingernail into it and see an indentation in the plastic. That's what you want. You want to soften the plastic up. Okay? Okay. Now, before we actually put this thing together, I'm going to make the assumption that we've worked all the problems out, um, all the parts that, you know, uh, that are in the way are out of the way. You, you figured out how to make this thing fit together perfectly. You test know where fit before you even put glue yes. on it, test you fit, have, test fit, test fit. You have test fitted till you're raw. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> and, and in addition to that, you have figured out ahead of time where you need to put your clamps in order to hold the fuselage halves together after you glue them. So there's no guessing or anything at this point. You've worked everything out into one smooth motion. Okay. So we go ahead, we go back to the, to the micro swabs and the hot uh, glue. We paint the uh, mating surfaces until the plastic gets soft. And then we put the halves together. We, we, we apply our clamps where, where we knew that they have to be. And now with the clamps in place and everything tight, we go back with a micro brush or a small paint brush and we apply another coat of that hot Tamaya glue to the seam and let it wick into the seam. Gotcha. Okay. And at this point, what you're looking for is splooge. <laughs> I know what you're talking about, but go ahead and define splooge. Is, is it not an onomatopoeia kind of a deal here, David? Y Exactly. It's like the word buzz. <laughs> it, it sounds like it is splooge. So when you push those halves together, you should see little blebs of plastic, liquid plastic coming out from between the halves. 
That's what you want to see, because that tells you that that bond between the two halves is a solid plastic bond between the two halves. Okay. Now, right. They're not just stuck together. They're melted together. They're, they're welded together. Exactly. And again, the trick not to beat a dead model, but the trick here is to wet the mating surfaces till they're soft, put them together with clamps and then wet them again and look for the splooge when you push the halves together. That's when you know you've welded the halves, you know, together. Um, now, uh, let me let me back up for a second and talk about those clamps. It is absolutely critical to not use a clamp that is going to uh, lay across the seam line and wick that hot plastic. And that's why I strongly do not recommend using rubber bands you know, right. a, around the, the fuselage halves because they will wick that hot plastic around the halves and, and, and ruin the, the, the surface uh, surface details. So after you've clamped the halves together and you have splooge, set that aside and wait for about 15 or 20 minutes because as that plastic dries, the little blebs of splooge that have come, come you know, out from between the, the joint they go through a stage where you can rub them off with just a cu- uh, just a toothpick and clean that seam up with nothing more than a wooden toothpick. Um, Rather than waiting for it to completely dry and either cut it with a knife and sand yeah, or... Yeah, yeah because, gotcha. yeah, because you can actually remove a lot of that splooge plastic, right, without ever having to uh, put a blade next to that seam and run the risk of, you know, cutting the seam. Gotcha. Or put putting a mark in it. So I usually wait about 10 or 15 minutes and I'll grab a, uh, a toothpick and I'll use it 90 degrees to the seam. And that, that the little splooge blobs of plastic literally pry right off of the seam, clean up really quite nicely. So after you've done that, you've set that aside and you've, you've let that dry. Um, hang on one second. Let me get to my notes here. So let's say the next day you come back and you take your clamps off and the hot, the hot glue has dried and you've got these nice seams. You've, you've, you've removed the splooge with your toothpick. Now is trick number two. And that is if let's say back to our model, it's a Mustang or a Spitfire or a Corsair or something like that. You haven't put that wing on yet, which means if you look through the wing box at the bottom of the fuselage, you can you can see or you can get access to the in the inner face of that fuselage seam. Gotcha. So at this stage, I'll go back and grab, a, I'll sacrifice a swab or a piece of um, sprue or a toothpick, whatever. And I'll grab my Bob Smith thick CA glue. And I'll take a, a blob of that. And from the inside of the seam, I will reinforce all of the seams that I can with CA glue. Now, is that done to prevent later splitting as you're working on the model? Yes. Okay. There is so, so it's not a thing where you're you're actually gluing the model together, but what no. you're doing is reinforcing that seam so yes. that when you're doing something later, you don't suddenly get one of those s- seam cracks that appear from nowhere. Yes. So uh, a brief digression. Um, I was building a 32nd scale Focal Wolf 190, and I had the thing about 90% completed. And I stood up from my bench with the model in my hand. I hit my overhead lamp. The model came out of my hand, 
after about nine months of construction, yes, this is a horror story, came out of my hand and landed on my glass bench top. And when it did, yeah, and when it did, it broke the gear off, it broke a prop, it broke the tailwheel. Nothing major. That All of that could have been repaired. But the main seam down the center of the fuselage was cracked all the way from nose to rudder. Ah. Right, exactly. And at that point, you go, okay, it's not simply a matter of re-gluing the gear together. That's that's like going back to square number two. Right? Yes. So after that that rather rather uh, uh, crude wake up call, um, I started reinforcing all of the seams that I can get access to with thick CA glue, B- because later on when you're handling the model, you're, you're putting a fair amount of pressure potentially if you you're having to grind or blend a seam out. And after you put the wings on, you're putting even more torque on the fuselage when you're sanding and blending. This just lessens the chance that if you're, you know, three quarters of the way through this build, that main seam that you don't want to let go, let's go. Gotcha. Right. So I'll go through, I'll reinforce and reinforce all of the seams I can with CA glue. And at this point, I also a uh, little shout out for a zip kicker, which is yep. a, a CA cattle. That makes this job very quick. So you take a glob of CA, you reinforce the seam, you take a swab, you know, uh, uh, saturated with zip kicker. You just touch that next to the seam. The zip zip kicker by capillary action runs along the seam, catalyzes the uh, glue. You move on to the next seam. Gotcha. Yeah. So let's go back. So now that we have uh, stabilized the seam uh, uh, with CA, uh, let's talk about the next step, which is going to be uh, blending those seams in. Okay. And before we get to that, let's talk about abrasives. I honestly don't think in general, modelers give enough serious thought to the abrasives they use. Um, In particular, using an abrasive that is too strong or too harsh for the job that you're doing. You mean too, too heavy a grit? Too heavy a grit. So you end up blending that seam in quite nicely. But when you put your primer or your paint on, you see that on, on each side of that seam scratches gotcha. in the plastic. Right. That's the consequence of using too too harsh and abrasive, you know, for that seam. So that's not to say that uh, hardware, you know, hardware store sandpaper isn't fine. It's fine. I have a whole drawer of it. I occasionally use it. You just need to be sure that the grit that you're using is a high grit or, you know, I should say a soft grit, if you will. Now, right. now, uh, do now when you sand, when you you use your abrasive, do you use them wet? I do, I do, and it's time for another shameless pu- plug. Um, about ten years ago, I stumbled onto using synthetic sandpapers made by Profile Abrasives. Okay, and this is the only abrasives I use now. They're plastic. They, it's a it's a plastic uh, um, uh, or a synthetic plastic backing with a synthetic abrasive. You know, uh, and it's they're much much finer. Uh, the thing that I like best about them is that they make less collateral damage to the surrounding areas after you use them, if you use the right grit. Right 
Now, when you first start using them, I've had a couple of guys send me emails and say, yeah, I tried this uh, profile accessories, you know, uh, sandpaper, and I, I can't get it to sand like normal paper. It won't sand like normal paper. As soon as you use a normal piece of sandpaper across, let's say, a, a seam, you're going to see pieces of, of plastic come off on the sandpaper, right? Right. With, with the synthetic sandpaper, you can, you can rub that sandpaper across the seam 10, 15 times, and you don't really get that much grit. It's only after 15, 20 cycles you start getting a little bit of grit built up, and that's when the synthetic paper starts working. So you have to use it a little differently than, than normal sandpaper. You have to use it, you know, probably with more swipes, if you will. Um, you have to maybe use a slightly higher pressure, high pressure. But the big thing is that when, if you, again, use the right grit for the right application, unlike hardware store sandpapers, you don't get all that collateral damage in the form of fine, tiny scratches that pop right through your primer and paint later on. John, when when you you talk about selecting the right grit for the right application, right? Do you take into account the manufacturer and their plastic? As we all know, Hasegawa is harder than Airfix as far as the the uh, strength of the plastic. The, yes. The, uh, Airfix stuff is significantly softer. And so when you're making the calculation for what grit to go for, you take into account the hardness or softness of the plastic. That's a great point. And yes, I do. And that's why where I was going to go next is it's really important to have a nice selection of abrasives. So you can match the abrasive to the hardness of the plastic you're working on. And the two examples you used are excellent. Hasegawa or Fujimi with that very, very, very hard plastic, especially if it's old Fujimi right. or something like Airfix, which is about as soft as you can get. Right. So unless you unless you go with the old frog stuff, that's like or uh, um, Heller stuff that's like soap or MPC or. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, good. Job. Yeah. Good. That's a yeah. callback. Yeah, it is. It is. I'm showing how old I am. But um, I was going to say that's for all the older modelers out there. <laughs> yeah, but so so back to that that assortment. In order to match the the density of the plastic to the abrasive, you need an assortment. And a good place to start is uh, uh, the Profile Accessories um, uh, was it waterproof ultra fine finishing kit. And in it, they have 400, 600, and a thousand and two thousand grit synthetic papers. Those are the grits, 400, 600, and 1,000 that I use the most for blending seams. And I might use the 600 or the 1,000 for Airfix, or I might use the 400 and the 600 for Hasegawa. But in general, those three or four grits, 400 to 2,000, you can usually match to the density of the plastic. You don't go below 400. In other words, you don't use anything grittier than, or rougher than 400 for oh, seam applications? Usually not for seams. I figure if I'm using, if I'm having to go below 400, I screwed up. Gotcha. So, uh, or, or, or I didn't screw up. I might be dealing with a model that screwed up. Gotcha. And, I, and I'm having to grind plastic away to make the seam work. So yeah, usually not. If everything's working well and I haven't screwed up, I can usually 600, by the way, is my favorite grit for, for most models and starting the blending the seam 
process is I'll grab 600 grit and I have a coffee mug that I, I fill with cold water. It's that's, it, it does help to have cold versus warm, cold water. And, really? uh, oh yeah. Why? You'll just, especially with the synthetic papers, you'll find that they glide a little easier if it's cold. You'll just Come. feel the, you'll feel the friction start building up as the, as they heat. And that's not surprising. Um, so yeah, I just try to keep cold water in there and three or four drops of Dawn dishwasher detergent to, you know, to give yourself a nice lubricant. Um, and that's what I use. Usually the 600 grit. Now, the other thing that is on my bench right next to the four and 600 grit profile accessories, synthetic papers are, is Micromesh. I love Micromesh. Okay. And as you guys know, it comes in both sat, uh, pads and sheets. And uh, for blending most seams that are just splooge filled seams, I usually go with like 3,600 or 4,000 grit Micromesh. Um, that does a great job, again, without causing all of those small ancillary scratches from using an abrasive that's too high. Okay. So, uh, in summary, in order to, again, what you said perfectly, David, in order to match the abrasive you're using to the density of the plastic that you're working with, have a nice assortment of abrasives and spend some time at the bench playing with different abrasives to see which ones will remove the putty or the splooge without giving you those, those, those ancillary scratches, which you're going to have to fill later on, especially, right. especially if back to our Mustang, especially if we're doing a natural metal finish or a polished aluminum finish on our Mustang, then seam work from step number one is key. Okay. So we talked about abrasive. So let's, let's say, let's say that, uh, You've put your halves together. You got your splooge. You 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 rub the splooge off with uh, with a, a wooden toothpick, and you're still left with a little divot in that seam that's going to have to be filled, which is pretty much normal. Sure. So now, question becomes: What do you fill it with? One of the things you may want to think about, and I have to give a shout out to um, one a, a good buddy of mine that's in the uh, the uh, Tuesday morning irregulars. This is a group of modelers that meet every Tuesday morning in my shop um, to discuss modeling, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And uh, John Sci-Fi Sage Chalinski, uh, one of one of the most experienced modelers that I know, uh, also uh, an ex F fourteen driver. Thank you, John, for your service. Um, he uses nothing but what he calls sprue goo. Yeah. I've, to fill his I, I, I have heard of a number of modelers who, yes. who I mean, this, this dates back 20, 25 years. It does. And so, so real quick, what sprue goo is for those of the, for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with sprue goo, um, you take the sprues from the kit that you're working on and you put them in a glass jar, glass bottle. And you put into that bottle some of that hot Tamiya liquid cement or similar and uh, put a top in the bottle, let that sit for a couple of hours. And what will happen is the sprue, pieces of sprue in that bottle will dissolve into the glue and turn essentially into solution. Right. It's and a solution of glue and styrene. It's essentially glue and styrene. And you can... Uh, Pick this once you shake it. You can pick this up with a toothpick or something similar. You can allow in that one trick, and this is something that I did not do the first time I tried to use sprue goo. Is I didn't get it thin enough. 
I got it too thick. And mm-hmm. you want to add enough glue so that the, the sprue goo actually flows a little bit. And you can pick this up on the tip of a uh, toothpick or similar and let that flow right into a seam. Let that dry. The upside to the sprue goo is that once it dries, it'll have a density that's similar to the plastic that you're already working with. Right. So so in sanding, you're like... If you tried to use super glue, super glue hardens so much more than the surrounding plastic so that when you go to sand that seam, you're sanding two different materials that wear away at different uh, different rates. Whereas if you're using the sprue goo, it's because of the fact that it's styrene, it's melted styrene. Yeah. So in theory, it should sand very similarly to the surrounding hard plastic. Especially if you use sprue pieces from the same model that you're making. So it's the same plastic you're putting back onto the model. So uh, I I hear about this all the time and I've just never had the luck with it. I I don't get anything that dries back to what the styrene I started with is. And, And I'm to be honest, now, my chemistry background's a little light, but uh, I think when you've gone to full solution, you may have destroyed the polymer. Well, I, I, I'm going to have to disagree with you. you I and think, you might, but I, this stuff I, is just, I, it, I go, think, go for it. I think if you destroy the polymer, the plastic would fall apart, and it doesn't fall apart. Once the solvent evaporates off, you're left with solid plastic. And... And it, 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 it might be, in my hands, it might be slightly harder than the density of the plastic you started with, but not enough to write home about. I, I, have, the op- I have the opposite problem. It, it just never dries anything hard as the plastic. Huh, really? Did you, yeah. did you get it thin enough to flow? Well, that could be it. I, I don't know. I, I'm going to keep playing with it because if this comes up in, you know, online discussions all the time and other podcasts, Sprugu, Sprugu. And, you know, it makes sense, but I, I'm, I haven't had the luck yet. And it's uh, it, it could be operator error. I, tr- I tried to use it um, to put an article together on it, and I ran into problems with it because I didn't get it thin enough. And I had it too thick and it didn't flow. And when it dried, it had little air bubbles in it. And I, I, I put a lot of work into fixing that. And I showed it to John Chalinski and he laughed and said, you didn't get it. You didn't get it liquid enough. I went back, added more glue, got it to flow. It worked beautifully for me. So maybe that's something you want to look at, Mike. Next time you try it, see if you can get it so that it's like a really thick primer. Okay. Uh, it's what I've got right now is probably thicker than a really good primer. Yeah. Hey, Mike. Yes. I, I would point out that you have an expert in your house. You have a chemical engineer. You can <laughs> you you can get a consult. I could. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if you're not interested in using the sprue goo, and I, I'm still working that, that out myself. I, I I as I said, once you get the hang of it, I think there's some utility there. But if you're not a sprue goo kind of guy, which I'm not always, uh, the two fillers I will use pretty regularly to fill seams is the old Mr. Surfacer 500 and 1000, the stuff that comes in a jar, you know, comes with a you know top. I will apply that with a toothpick and I'll let that dry. And again, back to the discussions on abrasives, I'll be careful to not use an abrasive that is too strong, but an abrasive that is just harsh enough to take that filler down without scratching the plastic. John, I will tell you that I like Mr. Surfacer 
500 or 1,000 as a scene. That is my go-to scene filler. Yeah. The only, the only, I think, down, well, I don't want to say only, but the main downside I find of it is that unlike, say, Sprugu or something like that, dried Mr. Surfacer is softer than the surrounding plastic. Yes. So it's easy to sand away. Yes. Without meaning to. Yes, which is why, you know, not to beat a dead horse, which is why, again, it's a really good idea to have as wide an assortment of abrasives as you can as you can get. And again, shameless plug, if you go on Model Paint Solutions, I've got four or five different uh, selections of grit paper, sanding films, uh, the ultra-fine, waterproof, you know, uh, synthetic papers. Again, sit down with an assortment of abrasives and spend some time identifying those that will take the filler down preferentially over the plastic. And once you work out, I mean, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time, right? I'm, I'm down to a point where I know I'm going to start with uh, Profile Synthetic 600. I'll go with that. I'll go from there to 1,000. I'll go from 1,000 to Micromesh 4,000 to Micromesh 8,000. That's my normal progression in abra- abrasives. But, gotcha. it took, but it took time. And most importantly, that progression might change if I went from, let's say, an old Hasegawa t- kit to an Airfix kit. I right. doubt if I doubt if I'd be using 400 grit on an Airfix kit. I'd probably stick with just 600 grit. You could go down to 400 grit if you're working on Fujimi on Hasegawa. So again, not to beat a dead horse, but the larger assortment of of abrasives you have, the the easier it will be to identify the one that will do the job without scratching the plastic. Because when you scratch the plastic, you've just made way more work for yourself. Yes. Something that I wanted to mention, and this is I, I, this may be a controversial opinion, this may be a non-controversial opinion, but I want your thoughts on it. I am convinced that modelers are unwilling to they they use their abrasive to longer than its life indicates. In other words. They're loath to throw away the tiniest freaking piece of sandpaper when it has served its purpose and has no longer become effective for sanding or you, for sanding at the grit level that you're looking for. Do you know sometimes what's better than a brand new piece of sandpaper is a, u- is a used piece of sandpaper that's been cleaned up with a rubber disc. I know I, I I have heard people who 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 do this who actually clean their sandpaper. Yes. Most modelers I don't think do that. I think they just keep using the same piece of of sandpaper or sanding stick again and again and again long past its actual useful yeah. life. So it's easy to throw a piece of sandpaper out when it becomes clogged. And, you know, you're just looking at at plastic that's stuck into the grit. But I find it really useful. Let's go back to, uh, let's take an archetypal piece of 400 grit, you know, profile synthetic paper. Yeah. I'll use that until it gets clogged. 
Um, the, I'll then take, and I, again, these are on the site. These are these little rubber discs that are basically file and sandpaper cleaning discs. It's a very hard rubber, about a uh, two inch round coin, if you will, of rubber. And if you use the edge of that wet, it will take, it will uh, defoul, if you will, the grit of the sandpaper. It'll take the plastic out, leaving the grit, but it's slightly softer than it was when you first started using it. Okay. And that is really handy because now you've got like a piece of 400 that you've kind of taken the bite off of and it won't necessarily scratch the plastic like it would when it was brand new, but it'll still do the job for you sometimes way better than a brand new piece of 400 or a piece of 600. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. So I will oftentimes, I'll start with a brand new piece of synthetic paper, but I will maybe halfway through the build, take a moment and take my little rubber disc and clean those pieces of paper off. It only takes 30 seconds. I actually find those pieces of pieces of paper that have been used once are more handy because they don't scratch the plastic as readily. Now, are you, are you one of these folks who applies tape along the, either side of the seam before you sand? Okay, neither am I, but I see plenty of people who do it. I do too. Again, I mean, that's what you have to do, I suppose. Actually, I wanted to let me cycle back real quick before I answer that sure. to so, something that, that I think Mike was talking about, and that is using CA glue for filling seams. Um, Actually, that was me was, mentioning was that. You? that. I cannot think of a worse thing to use. Yep. I, I, I completely agree with you. I have tried it countless times, and I know I'm going to get email for this because, you know, if, as you know, there are so many variables in modeling. And, you know, for every technique, there's a guy somewhere out there that's perfected it, right? So there's a guy out there that can make CA, you know, as a filler work, and he, he does polished aluminum finishes, and it's better than anything I've ever done. I know that. But in general... The, 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 again, what you touched on, the, the increased density, the higher density of the CA once it's polymerized versus the plastic, it makes it a very difficult filler to use and not gouge the surrounding plastic. Yeah, I, I have never had, you know, you hear people say, mix it with this powder, mix it with that powder. I, again, I have always found it because of the fact that it is, harder than the surrounding plastic once right. i use it as a filler right. i can never get it where it looks like bare plastic now there's one big caveat on that and that is for years and years and years i have used and i still use talcum powder mixed with uh -huh. ca glue yeah that's that's actually one of my favorite fillers and, and hear me out for a second. The nice, nice thing about this is because let's say you're doing an airfix kit, right? When you right. go to, when you go to mix your talc and CA together, I'll use a quarter size dollop of talc and a dime size dollop of CA. So I have a lot of talc, very little CA that will incorporate into like a dough that you can then press into the model because you have so much talc versus the CA, the resulting filler is very soft. Gotcha. Now, if I'm working on a Hasagawa kit and I'm going to use CA and talc as a filler, instead of using a quarter size dollop of the talc, I might cut that down to a, a nickel sized dollop of talc with the same volume of CA. The resulting filler will be much harder and more close to the density of Hasegawa plastic. 
Now, when you say CA, are you talking about a a, a slow dry type, a gel type, a quick set? I was going to get into that next. So that's called a segue. Here in professional land, that's known as a segue. <laughs> well, that's not that's not where we are. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I use Bob Smith Industries uh, Gap Filling CA Glue. So it's thicker, and I will mix that with CA Talc. And the other thing that's nice about this filler, uh, a real handy thing, is that you can use Zip Kicker on it. Right. So, so you can put that, you know, put that on your seam. You can Zip Kick it, and thirty seconds later, you're sanding away. You don't have to wait for the thing to dry. So, uh, just to end with that again, the CA talc and the, uh, excuse me, CA and, and, and talcum powder, that's one filler that again, you can change the density of by varying the proportions of the, the reagents. That's a real handy filler. And that's the one I probably use the most. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Now when I'm not using CA talc or, uh, CA and talc, I will use the mistal surfacer either 500 or a thousand. Um, and the other one that I use is, uh, is, you know, the, the, in the square bottle, the Tamiya liquid surface primer. Yeah. It's white. Yeah. Now in my experience, I find that stuff to be more easily removed than is Mr. Surfacer. I agree. I don't know why they made it white. That's the thing that I, that's just the one thing that bothers me. But it's so handy when it's white. Because what I'll do is I'll do my seams in, in Mr. Surfacer 500 or 1,000, right? And then I'll, I'll go to a softer putty to get those finer scratches. So I'll paint that seam with uh, the Tamiya Liquid Surfacer white. And then I'll use an even softer abrasive for that. I'll go from, like let's say, a, uh, a, a Micromesh 3600 to a Micromesh 6000, right? And then yep. I, I take just that white surface primer down. You can actually see the tiny little cracks or tiny little scratches filled in with that white primer over the gray primer. When it works, you, yeah, when it works, it looks like a little spider web of white scratches that are filled in over the gray primer. That's okay. when I know I've filled the scratches in. Well, based on something you just said, I've, I find, I, you know, I, I use Mr. Surface or 500 and 1,000 all the time. And that that stuff's hard on my sanding pads and stuff. You know, that's why that the, those rubber discs are a godsend because the Mr. Surface or clogs up sandpaper really, really well, quick. I don't mean clogs. I mean taking it down to the Mylar with no abrasive left on it. Oh, wow. Are you using it wet? Yes. Are you using the six ton, uh, six ton uh, GI Joe Kung Fu grip on it? I, I must be. So these are like <laughs> flexi file sanding pads and things like that. Yeah, you. I mean, yeah. Uh, wow. Now, I, I will tell you that the Alpha Abrasives Flexifile stuff. Oh, I love them because they. Oh, I love them too. But because they are mylar backed, I yeah. don't know what the the abrasive is attached to the mylar with. Right. But I do find that they are more susceptible to being worn away from yeah. the backing element than, say, you know, a squadron sanding stick or a CRM sanding stick. Yeah, I agree. I'm glad you mentioned those because I have those in my notes here. If uh, Back to our, our P-51 Mustang or for the aircraft guys. If you've not used the FlexiFile for sanding a rounded fuselage part, you, 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 you haven't lived. 
<laughs> yes, absolutely. It, it's one of those things that you looked at and you immediately went, why didn't I think of that? Yes, it is. I don't build an aircraft model without grabbing my flexi file. One yeah. of the things that I don't know if you're aware, you can get, you know, you know I, I, I'm, I'm assuming you guys are familiar with Micromesh 36, uh, 3600, 4000, 6000 grit. Um, Profile Accessories makes uh, 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 strips of micro mesh for the flex that fit the flexi file. Yeah, those will be going up on the site next month. And those are a handy tool to have, especially for buffing out canopies. Yes. Or if, if again, if you're doing a, a metal finish where you have to have a flawless, yes. uh, flawless base. Yes, yes. So, so back, to, so anyway, back to, back to the seams. So if you've done your, your 500, your 1000 and you have, you know, gotten those seams under control and, you know, you may use the Tamiya, uh, uh, white surface primer. That's what I do as my last step. Um, again, back to our Mustang. If we're, if we're planning to do a polished aluminum surface, the last thing I'll do to check my seams before I go to a primer is I will spray the seams with a sprayable filler. Okay. And what I'll do is I'll take and this. There's an article on the site about this, and it, it literally is, you know, you know, preparing and using sprayable filler. And I will take Mr. Surfacer and I'll set the bottle on my bench and I'll let all of the putty settle to the very bottom of the bottle. Let it sit for two or three days. And then I will open that bottle up and I will take a wooden stir stick and I'll grab a, a good thumb sized dollop of that settled putty in the bottom of the bottle. And I'll put that into a, a glass container or a glass bottle. And then I'll bring that thumb-sized dollop of, of putty, that filler, I'll bring that up in Mr. Color Leveling Thinner. And then I assume you put in a larger needle and larger spray head into your airbrush? Nope. Or do you brush paint it? Nope. I what? shoot it through a 0.2 millimeter tip. Really? Yep. I guess you thin the heck out of it. Well, if you have a thumb size, let's let's say you've got a, a, a dollop of filler that you have fished out of the bottom of the jar. That's about the size of your thumbnail on the end of your thumb. Okay, it's that volume, right? Yeah. Put that in an old tester's paint glass jar. And for that volume of filler, filler put about five mils, five to six mils of Mr. Color leveling thinner on top of it. That will go right into solution. You can shake it up with a little mixing ball. It goes right into solution. You can put that in your 0.2 millimeter uh, uh, nozzle and needle. It will spray beautifully. I've actually sprayed uh, this filler, uh, the concoction I'm, I'm discussing, through a 0.15 millimeter tip. And yeah, I had to dilute it a little bit more, uh, but it worked beautifully. And when I was done, I cleaned the nozzle and needle up with uh, leveling thinner, and uh, I still use them today. So, now, do you do you just spray the seams, or do you spray the entire model? No, I don't spray the entire model because I'm all about keeping as much of that uh, surface detail free of filler and primer and paint. So when we go to the washes and the panel liner stage, we'll have nice, you know, uh, uh, inscribed details. So the last thing I want to do is spray filler all over the whole, whole model, which is why I like spraying this, this sprayable filler through a small nozzle so I can fine line it. 
So back to my must my Mustang, I'll shoot the wing fillets. I'll shoot the main seam that runs you know around the fuselage halves. And two things happen there when you do that. Number one, because it behaves essentially like a paint, you will find out very quickly which seams are filled and which seams aren't filmed or aren't filled. Um, the, the, the sprayable filler, again, almost like a paint, highlights them beautifully. The other thing is, if back to those tiny little scratches we were talking about that you get on either side of the seam, if the abrasive was too high or too, too harsh, yep. if those scratches aren't really deep, wait for it, you can spray them away. And that is what you want to do. That's that's an argument that Mr. Bates and I have had uh, repeatedly. I am convinced that most people, when they spray their seams, don't spray enough so that basically they put in put on a, a coat on their seam to check the seam, and it's too light so that it picks up what are in essence micro scratches where if you applied one more coat of the of the seam checker filler it would actually fill it in and you'd never see it i couldn't agree more and the trick there is the gunze leveling thinner has such a low vapor pressure it evaporates off really quickly so if you're shooting this filler in leveling thinner you can you can shoot a seam you can wait 30 seconds and all of that solvent has evaporated off, which means you can go do another pass and another pass and another pass. And you can, with excess, successive passes, build up, the th- build up the filler right in the middle of that seam so that when it's dry, you only have to hit it with like six or 8,000 wet micromesh and you're done. Tell that debates next time you see yeah, him. Yeah, but <laughs> but I don't know if you caught. There's something. I mean, not again, not to beat a dead horse, but there's something important, at least I think, in, in what was just said there, and that is now we've gone to the last step. We're using sprayable filler, right? Which is not a very thick filler, right? And we're 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 checking our seams and we're using it to fill in some of those micro scratches. But now, since we've used a very fragile filler in the form of the sprayable filler. We're not going to go to 400 grit or 600 grit. We're going to go to micro mesh and we're going to going to go to 6,000 grit. Right. See what I'm saying? Yep. And oftentimes that sprayable filler, you hit that with soapy six or 8,000 grit micro mesh and that seam will turn into glass. And that's yep. what you're looking for. Yes. You, you, you want as much as, po- uh, as much as possible get it to the polish the same look as the surrounding polished plastic yep now worst case scenario you shoot that seam it's too big it's too deep you're not going to be able to fill it in with your sprayable filler at that point you're going to have to take a step back and go back to your you know your 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 filler 500 or 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 a thousand uh micro filler and that's fine because since you just sprayed a lacquer based filler on top of the seam you can go on top of that with your microfiller 500 or 100 or 500 or a thousand it goes right into solution it dries you can blend it in with the sprayable filler that you just put on top of it so that's one more reason to use it yeah well let me ask you a question why do you let the uh, mr surfacer settle out and scoop off the bottom before you thin it I'm glad you asked me that question because when I first published this article, I had so many guys sending me emails and asked, why are you doing that? Um, 
if you stop and think about it, the idea is that I want to get as much of that filler, not the solvent, not the binder, not the diluent. I want the filler and I want to suspend that filler in leveling thinner. So if I let it settle and I scrape up a dollop from the very bottom of that bottle and, you know, pull it up out on the, on the, on the end of a wooden uh, uh, stir stick, I'm not getting very much solvent or binder with it, with it, right? I'm just getting the putty. That's what I want. Versus if you shook that bottle up first and then did a one-to-one dilution of your suspended shaken filler with your leveling thinner, you're not going to get as much putty. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like harvesting the putty from the bottom of the bottle so that you have a putty-rich solution when you add the leveling thinner on top of it. Then you have enough putty there where you can dilute it to the point where it's working for you versus having a, a filler that's going to be too thin. And that's about it, guys. I can't All think right. of anything else. Man, well, you're, you, you've got this down to a science. Your timing is perfect. <laughs> well, you start you start building in 1973, and whether you want to or not, you learn something. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Well, I, I I appreciate that that, that uh, I think that th- this particular subject is underappreciated by most people, especially nowadays, where everybody wants to get to the finish and weather it. Uh, you know, decal it and weather it, they rush through this, and this is every bit as important. It's every bit as important, especially if you're going for, again, a polished aluminum finish, or if you're working with a seam. It doesn't have to be an aircraft. It could be a car or an armor, whatever, and you have a really prominent seam running right smack down the middle of this model. You're going to want to put a little extra time getting that seam filled because it doesn't matter how good your paint job is. It really doesn't. If that seam shows through the paint job, it's a done deal. Yeah. No, absolutely agree. Well, we got a, we got a minute or so here. I want to go back to one thing and it's, uh, geez, Mike, you've been dominating the conversation the whole night. it's, It's all been John. All right, Mike, do your question. (laughs) <laughs> so we we're talking about splitting seams earlier way back yeah yeah uh i've been working on this e16 paul from fujimi uh-huh and i was using tamiya extra thin on everything yeah and i'd get stuff glued together and i get working on it and i don't know a couple hours into it something starts splitting apart i glue it again it split later it split somewhere else Finally, I just went to Tester's liquid cement. Yep. And my seam splitting problem went away. Yep. So there's there's a little bit of uh, solvent and plastic compatibility out there oh, in the in the greater greater realm of model kits and, and model adhesives. Oh, th- there is. And, you know, a good way to test that is if, you know, take a piece of the sprue that you're working on, dip that in your hot Tamiya liquid cement and see how how soft the plastic becomes. It may not get real plastic, uh, real soft. Um, there, there is a differential sensitivity with some plastics versus others. So yeah, it's a good idea to, to you know, to play with some of the plastic you're working with with the glue before you actually commit to using it on the model, right? 
That's right. Well, I'll be doing that going forward. <laughs> but again, you know, back to your kit, did you have access to the inner aspects of those seams at any point during the build? Uh, I did. I don't now, but it's a good right. point because it's a Japanese aircraft, which have the really, you know, they all have really fat wing roots. So there's, yeah, you can, you can reach way up in there, way up in there. So yeah, you know, yeah. I'll take, I'll take the time to pe- take a piece of sprue, stretch it, bend it, put the, put the white, the right little, you know, crank into it so that I can reach to the very end of the tailplane, all the way up to the bottom of the belly on the inside aspect of the seam. Again, it may take you 30 minutes to do that and zip kick it, but it's an investment and in not dealing what you're dealing with now. Cause that's just frustrating. Yeah. Well, I think I've got it licked now, but uh, it, it wasn't fun at the time. <laughs> like what the hell have I got myself into? Dave? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Blame me. Or, or as a, or as too tall Tim likes to say, God, what we do is so stupid. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and I agree. Hey, I agree. Hey, John, is there anything new at uh, Model Paint Solutions? Well, I'm glad you asked, Dave. Um, so we, we, I just uh, put up on the site something I've been wanting to put up for years since I started Model Paint, which was the the dual airbrush stand. In addition to being just truly sexy. I mean, it's just a nice looking airbrush stand. Um, it also acts as a manifold, an air, air, air manifold. And the way this, the way I, I didn't think I was going to use mine as a manifold, but I, I broke one out of the, the, the package and started playing with it in my shop. And you know how it is. One thing led to another. And before you know it, I've got my compressor now about eight feet away from my workbench under another table. And I run an airline to my dual airbrush holder air manifold. And then off of the manifold, I have a second line that goes to my airbrush. So not only do I move the compressor farther away from where I'm working, but now I have my air pressure and all my rig in one little portable unit that I can move into my into my paint booth or I can move around my bench as I'm working. Handy, handy tool. Very handy tool. Um, so that's the first thing. If you hit the site, uh, I put an article up on the new dual stands and you can take a look at that. The other thing real quick is I've had a, a rash of emails from guys who don't necessarily want to put a lot of money into an infinity. Um, mm-hmm. but they still want to, to step up to a harder steamback kind of performance and something that I have yet to do on the site. I've been meaning to write an article on the evolution. And the Evolution is the brush that's just down below the Infinity and the hierarchy of harder Steenbeck brushes. But uh, it's the brush that I use for about 80% of all of my airbrushing. I only use the Infinity for about 20%. And, you know, I'm harder Steenbeck probably doesn't want to hear that, but <laughs> that's the truth. Um, the, in the, infin- the Infinity is the perfect airbrush for fine line work, you know, one millimeter wide and smaller. Right. Um, but you know, not everybody does work like that. And I've gotten a lot of email from guys who are doing ships or large scale armor and they don't need a fine line, but they want a brush with the, the quality, you know, of a harder steam back. The evolution is the way to go. It's 150 bucks. It, it can take all of the same tips that the infinity takes. So if you want to use the ultra fine tip for fine line, you can add that later on. But you don't necessarily have to. And again, a lot of guys don't need a Porsche 911. A lot of guys are happy with a small pickup truck. 
which is kind of what the evolution is. So anyway, that's I'll end it with that. For guys who want to step up to a harder Steenbeck, don't want to put you know three hundred dollars out. Think about the evolution. It's the it's the brush I use way more than the Infinity. All right, John. Thanks again for for giving us some insight and some wisdom, and uh, I'll apply some of that to my scene filling. I'm sure. <laughs> I enjoyed it, guys. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Absolutely. And and hope that you're already making plans to get down to San Marcos. Your fans demand it. I will be at San Marcos. I have cleared it with uh, the powers that be. And uh, next year I am clear. And I'm actually thinking of driving down. Um, I like I, I, I like taking long, long cross country trips. So I think might turn that into a little bit of a vacation for myself. But you can count on it. I'll be there. That's great. All right, John. Well, thanks for joining us again, and we'll get you back on uh, as soon as we can. All right, guys. Take care. Take care. All right. Well, Dave, what did you think? Uh, listen, I've said it before. Every time we do an interview with, with Dr. Miller, I learn something new, you know, stuff that I'm going to uh, uh, try out, stuff that I'm going to put into my arsenal. Um, and this was this was no exception. John is, uh, for all his self-deprecation, John is a an excellent modeler, and b he approaches it from a very scientific standpoint. And since a lot of what we do is with glues and solvents, etc., it's always always interesting. It is. There's some things there I'm going to try and some things I've got me scratching my head. I'm going to have to think about a little more, maybe talk to John about it a little more. But uh, I, I tell you, in my new job, I kind of get it. Uh, the man's leaving nothing to chance. Uh, and I suspect that is in part because of his background. Now that I've also spent some time in a biosafety cabinet building something sterilely uh, for whatever reason, going to space or immunology or, you know, whatever he was doing. Uh, you got to be careful and uh, you kind of want to eliminate all possibilities for failure up front. So are you uh, saying that space requires a belt and suspenders approach to uh, uh, build it, building stuff that's going up there? Pretty much. I would imagine so. You're right. I hadn't even thought about that, but you're right. I'm sure that's where that comes from with him. So he's pretty thorough. Yes. And, you know, his results speak for themselves, so. Absolutely. I'll, I'll just have to see what I put into practice. Yep. Well, Dave, it's the Benchtop Halftime Report, brought to us by Tackett Z, the must-have tools for the model maker. You can see what Ed's got going on at TackettZ.com. I've been seeing his stuff at the shops. I've been seeing his stuff at the shows. Uh, we need yes. to get in touch with Ed again and see what's coming around the corner, and uh, I'm sure he'll be at our show. He, he will, and I actually have a little news on that front later on. Well, Dave, what's on your bench? Uh, too much. Uh, I need to finish some stuff. I need to clear because one of them's a B-52. Yes. Once, you get, once you get that out of the way, you have all kinds of room. You're, well, yeah, kind of. Uh, B-52 is 80% painted. Uh, I'm doing a marbling effect to try and break up that monotonous gray. We'll see how it all works out in the end. Um, you know, this is, it's 144 scale, but it's still the biggest model that I've built since I got back into modeling. And especially with doing this tedious marbling detail stuff, 
where you're spraying close up to the model panel by panel. I, I can't do it for more than like 30 or 45 minutes. And you would think in 30 or 45 minutes, you could get a lot painted, but you really, really can't when you're working in individual panels and detail painting. So it's about 80% done. And then as soon as I get it, as soon as I get the, all the paint on it, then it's gloss coat, decals, gloss coat, and satin coat, uh, put on the gear door and the gears, unmask the canopy, and it's done. It's the glide slope from where I am to this model being finished is very short. I have high hopes that it's going to be done for the MMCL contest, which I'm really looking forward to. So that's number one. And you're right, it will clear up a bunch of space. The Airfix Kate is coming along. Uh, I'm working on the interior of it. And even though I am going to uh, put a closed can closed greenhouse canopy over it, so you're not going to see that much of it, I'm still taking my time to do do stuff as if it was going to be an open canopy, kind of really to practice for the Arma P51 for the Musaru, because I've been inspired by uh, what Inchai has done when he built 16 of them, what uh, Chris Siebert Luftrom did on the one that he did that was so fantastic. Arma themselves featured the model. I'm I'm going the extra mile on this Kate interior, not because it's going to be anything anybody's going to see, but just to try and sharpen my skills. Because one of the things I truly have realized uh, is that this isn't like riding a bicycle. If you don't do it regularly, you you lose those skills. They atrophy. So doing this and and going farther than I might normally with this interior on this Kate is simply a matter of trying to keep those skills fresh for when I hit the Arma Hurricane, or I mean the Arma P-51. And then that's, that's the stuff I'm actively working on. Um, I did a Facebook post recently on our page uh, regarding the Citadel Metallics. Uh, which I used and which you recommended to me. Uh, and I'm actually going to do another post on that. But uh, modeling-wise, I am making progress, although because of, again, life events, things aren't moving as quickly as as I would like them to, but they are still moving, and that's positive. And I, I, I need to not focus on the negative. I need to focus on the positive. So... Uh, I'll ask about your bench. You got any any cable thread that that make a really good catapult cable? Oh man, you had to go there. Yeah, I thought I would. Well, Dave is referring to the E16 pole and the catapult project that I really would like to get done here soon. Uh, the, everything's ready for paint, except I need to rig the catapult before I start painting it because it ripples into how the launch trolley bonds to the airplane. Et cetera, et cetera. And you, you know how you're going to rig it, right? Yes, I know how I'm going to rig it, but I can't find the right crap to do it with. First thing I wanted to try was some uh, 
heavy elastic thread. I got some of that at Joanne's fabric, some German stuff. So it ought to be good, right? It's the same stuff Ushi probably packages. Well, no, because this stuff's bigger than that. Is it? Okay. The problem is, is that when you stretch it and put some tension in it, it's all lumpy and bumpy looking. Gotcha. So that's a non-starter. So I guess I could fix my socks with it later. (laughs) Then I remembered there was some scale cable that model railroaders used to fancy from a company called Vintage Productions. And I found some of that on eBay. The company's long out of business now. Uh, when I got it, it was nice. It was a, a braided, you know, essentially like a tow cable, which is exactly right. what I needed. Uh, the problem was you, there's really no way to get the tension you needed in it to get it, get all the sections perfectly straight. Gotcha. And nothing will spoil the scale effect of rigging than having it. Having a sag or a having kink. Having a or sag a- or a kink or something in it. So that, that was a non-starter. So th- then I figured out I needed something between like 0.3 and 0.4 millimeters in diameter. So, I f- well, this got started because I found some half a millimeter stuff at... Uh, some beading cord at, at the craft store, Michael's or someplace like that. Uh, the, it was nylon, so no fuzz on it. It would have been perfect, but it was too damn big in diameter. Uh, it, it wouldn't go under the small pulleys. So then I ordered some stuff from, uh, where did I say that stuff was from? Kazakhstan? No, almost, but not Kazakhstan. The other K-Stan. Kagiristan? Yes, that's it. Okay. So now that is now my most exotic place I've ordered a modeling product from. Though it wasn't a modeling right. product, but it was for modeling. Sure. Uh, 0.4 millimeter cord. Yeah. But it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't braided. It was woven. Oh, okay. So as soon as you put a wash on that, it's going to look like a fire hose. Right. right? So. Yeah. That was a buzz. So. <laughs> As soon as I get a minute, I'm going to go back over to Joanne's and go back into their heavy thread and see if I can find something in nylon that's about 0.3 to 0.4 millimeters in diameter. And uh, I'm just going to pick something and go with it or it ain't going to happen. Hey, listen, the ladies at Joanne are very, very helpful. If you walk up to them, I mean, you know, they may look at you a little crazy when you tell them exactly what you need and why. But if they have something that'll work, they definitely will will point it out to you. Well, that's the E16. I'm also working on the KV85. Yes, I, I've gotten to see this a little bit. You're doing something interesting regarding the the suspension. Can you describe it? Yeah the uh, the way Bronco has architected the uh, the road wheels and swing arm assembly is just stupid. I mean, for no lack of a better description, it's just nonsensical the way they did it. Okay. I mean, why do you, can you come up with any conceivable reason why they did, did it the way they did it? No. Okay. Not at all. I I really can't. Well, tell people what they did. Just to make more parts out of a few. 
most traditional armor kits, I mean, going all the way back to the Tamiya 35th scale Panther, their first 35th scale armor kit, the impetus of the scale. Yeah. Bar, I mean, period. That's where it started. They made a model of a Panther and it just happened to be 35th scale when they were done. Okay. That's got nothing to do with it. But anyway, the point is the kit had swing arms with axles on them and road wheels with holes in them. You put the wheel on the axle and it's done. Right. For some reason, Bronco has you trap a pin between inboard and outboard wheel halves. So the axle is actually on the wheel. Then it fits into a hole in the swing arm. Then there's not enough clearance or there's not enough of the pin protruding from the inboard side of the road wheel. Once it's all together, like they want you to put it together, that the pin even touches the hole, the hole sides of the swing arm when you go to put the two things together. So, uh, if you're building this thing up unpainted, it would probably work out all right. I mean, people have built this kit. You don't see many of them, but uh, they're out there. I don't think I've ever seen a KV-85 at a contest. Was there one at Omaha? Did you, or I mean, uh, did you look for one? Uh, it seems like there was one that took a prize in one of the armor categories, but I don't, I think it was the trumpeter kit. Okay. I could be mistaken. I, I don't know who built it. We'll have to go back and look. I have to there, go back and look. There's a uh, presentation that'll tell you who, who won what. Anyway, I've been spending the last few sessions at the bench, which have unfortunately not been very many, re-engineering this stuff to, to make it more like a traditional assembly that all armor modelers are used to, uh, primarily because I didn't think the kit method was going to be robust enough for this uh thing down the line I'm going to be doing, which is uh, articulating the suspension a little bit on the, on the base. Now, when you articulate the suspension, what, what base do you have an idea of that you're going to be going over? Folks who are familiar with KV-85 should be familiar with uh, the white 31 marked vehicle that the Germans captured at Maritopol in Ukraine in 43, I think. There, there's a place that's been in the news lately. Yeah, that's right. So I'm modeling that vehicle before it got shot to hell and captured by the Germans. So I'm having it on advance somewhere, and I want to have it crossing a, a railroad track. So that's what I got going on with it. That's why I want to articulate the suspension. Uh, maybe it's maybe the tracks on a short, on a small, you know, a shallow or a, you know, a not so tall fill. So yeah. it's kind of an elevated thing. It's it's coming over. Maybe a couple of the crew members will be dismounted, checking something out. I, I don't know yet, but the plan is to articulate the suspension. That's something I've never done before. Um, that will be my plan for getting better on this project. I didn't think the uh, Bronco assembly method and, and engineering was going to be very robust to trying to do that. Gotcha. So that's why you're, you're going to all this trouble. Yeah, that's why I'm going to all this trouble. It's not too much trouble. Uh, and if folks hang on a while, there might be a video coming out about some of this. So we'll see. That's I'm kind of playing around with that. You talk to Evan and get some pointers. <laughs> well, that would be a good choice because Evan's, Evan's latest video on painting the British World War II green on that M10 was really, really good. Well, he did a good job with that one. Yes, he did. So 
my plan was, and I told you to write it down last Thursday, I think that I was going to have the road wheels and swing arms all done and, and the lower hole all ready to start doing upper hole work. And I told you to write it down. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't going to mention this. Yeah. Well, I didn't make it. <laughs> well, I you got, ma- you made it part of the way. I got all the road wheels and swing arms done. Yeah. I was going to say, we got to give you credit for getting 50% of the way there. Yeah, probably 50%, but we'll see. So that's it, man. That's what's on my bench. That's all I got. All right. Now, this this next segment, we may have to limit simply because this is the first time we've done this since we came back from the Nationals. But, Mike, uh, what broke your wallet? Well, I think we've not talked about what we got at Nationals, have we? No, we have not, which is why I said we might we might need to pick and choose here. Well, we had uh, a warm-up to this, uh, the episode before the Nationals. Actually, two episodes before the Nationals. Yeah. We talked about what we hoped to break our wallet. Yep. And mine was kind of divided into two parts. Kind of toolsy stuff and then kits. Well, other than two kits Jim Bates brought me from uh, his stash, uh, the kits the kits on my list was a bust. I didn't buy any kits at the Nationals. Hard to believe. Yeah, I know. Uh, I finally got those stealth sanding frames from Flexifile, you know, the ones with the 45-degree bend in them. Yeah. I bought the three-pack of those. Haven't used them yet. Now, that doesn't come with the bait with the holder, does it? No. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to that in a, a yeah, couple you, minutes. You've you got to buy the, the, the straight-framed ones to get that. Yes. Well, Maybe. Uh, and then, you know, UMM was going to be there and I was expressing some excitement about that. So I did drop some money there. I got, uh, I got one of the uh, Vertigo assembly jigs for 72nd scale aircraft. Yep. I've yet to put that together. Mine was together the, within three days of being back. And then I got uh, all three of his scribers. They, those are all very, very useful. You know, I'm trying to think what else I bought. Not much. I think I did pretty good. Yeah, you did. You did good. Now, other than uh, this stupid catapult rigging breaking my wallet, uh, <laughs> I, I, I did order just yesterday the uh, the Russian gauge railroad track set from MiniArt, but I had to order that from BNA Model World in Australia because nobody else has it. Well, I and mean, listen. BNA is a great company. They they give they, great service. Uh, they've already shipped it. I better be here soon enough. Um, yep. And many art can't help the fact that it's not available anywhere. At least till it gets set up again in Poland. Exactly. Well, what broke your wallet, Dave? A little bit of everything. Went to the Nationals. I picked up uh, detail and scale on the F8 uh, for reasons that will become clear at a future episode. Uh, I got generously... Given the Musaru Cup Arma uh, P51BC, Mr. Bates brought me uh, two kits that I had purchased. They were Arma KI-84s from uh, uh, Model Paint Solutions. He generously offered to serve as the uh, shipping, freight and shipping. So he brought those to me as well as bringing you stuff. Uh, I picked up a couple of decal sheets. Big surprise there. Yeah, I know. I know. But really, what happened to me was post-Nats, I guess maybe I didn't, uh, 
I know I didn't spend my entire budget. You know, I go with X amount of cash, and that is my at least initial budget for for modeling purchases. And I didn't spend all of it at the show. So post-show, I bought the uh, four uh, S38 S-boat. I found one... I found one of them at the show, but the vendor wanted $130 for it when I knew I could get it off of eBay from China for $89. That's enough of a difference that I'm going to go ahead and order it from eBay. I did. Uh, From Tom's Model Works, I ordered some color coats, paints, and thinners from AK. Actually, AK itself, I ordered... AK Gen 3 paints, two sets, one for Japanese Army aircraft, one for Japanese naval aircraft. By the way, the shipping was super quick on those. Uh, And then um, Mark Copeland, a friend of uh, Steve Hustad, he and I at at the convention got to talking about Ploesti. We both have a super big interest in Ploesti. And so subsequent to the show, we exchanged some emails and he pointed out a book that I didn't have on the subject that he recommended. So I ended up on Amazon ordering that book and it's on the way. And then I already mentioned Michael Karnaka pointed out that images of war book. So I've ordered it. So I've got a lot of stuff coming in, uh, and I don't feel bad about any of it. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm happy as a pig in slop. I've, I'm, this, I'm riding the Nats wave. We'll see how long this lasts, but right now I am uh, spending some money, getting some stuff, getting some stuff that I think I'm going to use relatively quickly relatively soon in my modeling projects i'm just i'm living the life man i'm enjoying it all right so mike uh, have you found the bottom of your glass just about so I, mean, I could i could not but there won't be any for you <laughs> well you listen i'm a generous guy if you want another hit take another hit it's not gonna hurt me well it's getting close to bedtime okay so what did you think this is hawaiian bourbon and it's not it's, it's it's not bourbon. Oh, is it not bourbon? It's whiskey. It's whiskey. It's a okay. Well, it's not bourbon whiskey. Gotcha. It's just whiskey. Gotcha. Uh, it's young and it shows. It's so co- lighter color. Uh, it's it's pretty golden. Okay. It's, it's not it's not leaning toward brown just yet. Um, now the first time I had some of this, I had it on ice, and uh, it wasn't great on ice. After I cut cut a little bit, because I don't think it had much room in the flavor palette for much to be cut out of it. Gotcha. Because it's young. Because it's young. So tonight, um, it's neat. Okay. And neat, for those who don't know, means no ice. Uh, It's a a little sweet, but it's got a good finish on it. On the sides of the glass, the legs are interesting. Now, legs meaning how it streams off the glass after, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. The, the way it runs back down the glass yes. after you take now, a I'm, sip. I'm not a legs expert, at least not 
for whiskey legs. It's it's doing some things I've never seen before, but I don't know what that means. Okay. Um, I think you're going to like this, but I'm going to save the rest for you and let you decide. Well, I can't wait. I want to taste that. And I, I, Dave, Ian, and Julian, thank you for uh, going ahead and checking it in the bag and getting that getting this stuff to, uh, to Omaha so we could feature it on the show and I can enjoy it here. But it is good. It's young, but it's good. Now it's a blend. They're blending their own with uh, some older stuff from sure from from mainland. So I wonder who they're partnered with to do that. That's a good question. But anyway, old old Poly Road whiskey. It's a it's a pretty good little pour. Yeah. Apparently the the owners are a couple of veterans. So always happy to 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 give a shout out to a a couple of veterans who who serve the country and then serve the country again by making whiskey. Well, they're off to a good start. I think what, what I would predict is that, uh, you know, they're, does it say when they were started here? It does say veteran made, but it does not say how old the distillery is. Yeah. Um, it's probably not very old. Sure. And I think they're off to a good start. And I think, uh, this get north of five years, and it'll be real interesting. They'll bottle it as something different. Then, I mean, it'll still be their sure. own stuff, but it won't be. It won't be this. Yeah, uh, it'll be something else. So, Dave, next time you're coming through Hawaii, like five years from now, stop in again, <laughs> and <laughs> see. he's he's th- he's threatening to go to San or to uh, Madison. So, if we can get him to to stage through uh, Hawaii again, maybe we'll get another bottle. Uh, we might. Well, how's yours working out? Well, it it's Woodford Reserve, which you know it's great. Um, it's double oaked, yeah, which that one's, that one's got a lot of flavor, man. I was gonna say it's it it well rounded. The first thing you notice is it's that dark amber color because of the double oaking. In other words, it's aged in one barrel then transferred and my understanding is is it's aged again for additional time in a fresh barrel so it picks up a lot of the color uh it's dark um it's very well rounded about 92 proof you don't taste a bit of the heat I have to ask Evan if you don't taste the heat. <laughs> well, okay. Evan's Evan's a little okay. He's a neophyte. We'll get him there. Give us time. <laughs> um, especially if we go to Heritage Con. But I mean, there the caramel notes, there's vanilla. It it just it's smooth. It's you know, this this is something that if you're a bourbon drinker. This is something that I guarantee you as a bourbon drinker, you're going to enjoy. Now, I'm drinking it over ice. I'm drinking it on the rocks with a, an ice ball. And it just, it's, it's perfect for that. I really enjoyed it. All right, man. Well, we'll see what we get into next episode. These are yes, both, both new for the show. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not like either one of us is is hurting for brown liquors. Mike, uh, as we're coming up toward the end here, do you have a shout out? Because I've got a couple. I've got one, and uh, it's a little surprising to myself. All right. Uh, Hobby Boss? 
No, it's not Hobby Boss. No BT5 okay. from Hobby Boss. <laughs> okay. I, mean, I had to ask. They'll release one. It'll suck. There'll be some fatal flaw. In <laughs> Ever the optimist. Uh, I want to shout out uh, Ed and Aaron Skinner and the team at Fine Scale Modeler for the September-October 2022 issue of Fine Scale Modeler. Really? This is as close as they've gotten in a long time to something that is like a Paul Boyer edited version of Fine Scale Modeler. Now, I, I, I only say Paul Boyer because that's who was the editor back when, oh, yeah. when we first it- started. And the magazine has changed a lot yes. since then. And, you know, I understand to, you know, shrinking market, you need a broader appeal. All that. Right. I, I get all that. But, you know, that doesn't mean I don't miss the content style of the older publication. Because there was nothing like it before then. Because well, so many people were doing stuff that had never been done before. Right. And, and now, you know, the truth is that so much of this stuff is being done again and again. Uh, you can get stuff you could never get before. You don't have to do things you used to have to do unless you just make yourself do them, right? Right. Uh, but every article in this thing is kind of slanted in that direction. Even the car article, there's a van conversion in here that the guy shortens the van body and uses a silhouette cutter to cut the stencil for the, the 70s graphics on the side of the van. I, I will have to pick that that up. Check it out, folks. If you're not a subscriber, go go pick this one up. And uh, I don't know. I'm, I've, I'm about halfway through it. I've skimmed the whole thing, but uh, I, I was I was duly impressed. Well, good. That's this, great news. This feels like an old friend came to visit. Well, that's fantastic. So, Aaron, good job. I don't know if that's going to be the thing going forward, but you know, this this issue, this issue, God, what to say? What's your shout outs? I've got two of them. And both happen to be our sponsors, but it's not because they're sponsoring the the episode. First shout out, Dr. Miller, Model Paint Solutions. I ordered from him two of those Arma KI-84s, which he duly turned over to Bates for delivery. Just fantastic customer service. Uh, I also recently went on uh, his website and ordered some other items. His his internet um, merchant store works beautifully, very, very hassle-free. In addition to being a good and knowledgeable modeler, uh, he runs a really nice business, internet modeling business. I, I, I highly recommend visiting his store. The other shout-out is Ed Tackett at Tackett's or Tackett Z. I mentioned that Alpha Abrasives, the folks who make the Flexophile, they sell a, if you buy the set of straight Flexophile uh, handles, if you buy them in a group, they have an actual, I don't know, styrofoam or foam. Well, it's a box set. You get the, the foam stand inside a, a acrylic case. Right. Well, you should use to. I assume it's the same way. It is the same way. And as a matter of fact, I talked to the guys there. They don't sell it separately. Um, That's the only way to get it. Um, I actually talked to Ed and said, you know, 
this, I need a stand for my flexophiles and both the straight ones and the, the stealth ones with the 45 degree bend on them. And, you know, I think that not only am I interested in it, I suspect there are other guys out there who would purchase a similar product. And Ed was very open to taking a shot at it, prototyping something that would serve as a flexophile stand or holder. So I'm working with him right now to see if we can come up with something that not only is he going to make for me because I asked him to, but may end up being a new product in his line and something that a lot of guys who have a number of these flexophiles, both straight and stealth uh, or angled, uh, will be able to use. Because I don't know about you, but my flexophiles now just end up scattered all over my model bench. And it would be really nice if I can simply stick them in a rack and then grab the one I need with the with the the appropriate grit already on it. Well, I've got the flexifile version. Oh, do you? For the straight ones already, yeah. And it's and actually finished populating all the slots. So I've got like five of those frames in that thing. Well, I'll be interested to see what Ed comes up with. Optimistic that he'll come up with something that'll be very useful, uh, for t- particularly to populate both the angled frames and the straight frames. Is that it? Those are my shout outs. Well, Dave, this one's getting a little long because of our special guest. So we probably ought to wrap this up. I think we should, man. You know what they say. So many kits, Dave. So little time, Mike. See you soon. All right, man. We'll see you soon.